Good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, open it up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we will start there. Mighty fortress is our God. Amen. Uh, Martin Luther wrote those words. Next week is actually Reformation Day. Not exactly sure that's what he had in mind with it, but you know. The original was written to a German beer hall song. I don't know if you know that, but that's how Luther rolled. So he would have been all about it. He'd been like, yeah, all right. At least that's what I assume. Uh, Welcome to Fellowship Church. We're glad you're here. We are going through the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews offers us some unique opportunities in the New Testament because it very systematically takes a look at Judaism and shows how Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. And that in fact, what Judaism was, was a shadow, a type for what was going to be revealed through Christ uh, and his sacrifice. So when we open up the book of Hebrews and we get into chapters eight and nine, we get into some very specific things and ideas that the author of Hebrews is trying to help us understand, find their reality in Christ. Now, what I mean by that is that you read the book of Hebrews and you read a lot about priests and sacrifices and blood and, and it's all very anachronistic to us. It's from a different time. We don't, we don't, we don't, we've never really participated in animal sacrifice unless we have a past we don't talk about, but, uh, it's not just a part of our everyday life. We don't really understand those things. So there's a reality in which some of this becomes very kind of philosophical, sort of ethereal to us. And what we're going to see this morning is that the author of Hebrews is beginning to kind of turn the page from the philosophical, from the theological to the practical. And that there there really should be some distinctions in how we live because of what we've learned about what has happened in Jesus. All right. Why is theology important? Theology is important because good theology creates good worship. Okay? So when you hear somebody say, oh, I hate theology. Well, then you don't really like to worship. Oh, yeah, I do. No, you don't. Because thinking rightly about God creates in us right, good worship. So what we've gone through is some pictures of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what it's now being offered to us because of it. And if we believe those things, they will create in us a new way of living. And that new way of living is proper, right worship. So this morning, we, we, we come to chapter 10. And the author's beginning to kind of turn from the theoretical, if you will, not theoretical, but the, the philosophical, to the practical. And the next, next few chapters are very, this is how you need to live now. If you really think this through and you understand these things, this is how you should live. And he recaps what has gone before, what's happened before. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, he writes this. For since the law has uh, but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now, there, there's the first picture right there, okay? There's the first picture. For since the law, now the law is Judaism. That's, that's the old covenant. Whenever you see that, that's indicative of the old covenant or of what we would call Judaism. For since the law is a shadow, it is a shadow of the good things 
that, that were to come, that they are now, it's not the reality. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It can never make perfect those who draw near. And that's the rub of this whole book, really. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is show the distinction between Judaism, which every year has to make sacrifices for sin. And not really just every, even every year, every day, if you sin every day. It's got, you sin, bring, in, bring this in, they'll make this for you, all the time. And the whole point of the chapter is, by definition, if you, make a defin- if you make an atonement for sin, if you make a sacrifice for sin, and know that you're going to be back next week, month, year, then that sacrifice really didn't help you out. It wasn't perfect. It didn't perfect you. It just delayed until the next sacrifice your judgment. Like on the day of atonement, the once a year sacrifice for sin made under Judaism, the day called Yom Kippur. They make a sacrifice for sin. If it's accepted, they're good for a year. But the whole time you're knowing it's coming back around. Are we going to be good this year? Yep. Next year. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to put before us is the idea that this once for all nature of Christianity is a gift because there is no next year. And that we are able now to come to God with the idea that we're not going to have to do this over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's one and done. And that's the blessing of the new covenant. So the author is trying to point out to us this idea that this old covenant, what we call Judaism, cannot make us perfect because we continually have to offer sins, offer for sins. Uh, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, draw near is an Old Testament ism. All right? It's an Old Testament description of those who desired to worship. Now, if you're a regular attender of fellowship, you know that we have a monthly worship service, very specifically designed for being an extended period of worship called Draw Near. And that's the idea. In the Old Testament, the, those who wanted to worship had to go to the official place of worship. Okay? Now, as a Jew, you could, you could go to synagogue on Sabbath. You could do a lot of things. But if you ever had to offer a sacrifice or you wanted to be where God was, you had to go to Jerusalem. You had to go to wherever the tabernacle was at the time. So there became this image of let's go to where God is. Let's draw near to him. Like I live way up in the north at the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem's way in the south. If I really want to go do some worship and I got to go get on my horse, donkey, whatever, go way south to worship. That's me drawing near. I'm coming to where he is. So the idea here is those who want to draw near to God, who want to worship God have a problem. And the problem is the need for a sacrifice for sins that actually accomplishes making you able to draw near. See, we'll see, watch what the author is saying. Otherwise, verse two says, they would not have ceased to be offered, meaning the the sacrifices, since the worshipers 
having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The very idea of knowing that my sins, I just offered my sacrifice, but I'm going to have to come right back, by its definition, separates us from God. Knowing that I'm I'm just going to have to come back is a separation from God. And if there's one thing the Bible bends over backwards to teach us that our culture Our modern American culture, our modern American religious culture, and our sinful nature bend over backwards to deny is that there's separation between God and humanity because of sin. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to talk about it. We turn into bestsellers, the books that present a God that that's not true about. But the Bible goes on and on and on to assure us that sin separates humanity from God. There's no ambiguity. There's no ambiguity. There's no tongue-in-cheekness. It is as clear a teaching in the Bible as there is. Modern American religious culture. Oh, God's gonna be, it's gonna be okay. Don't worry about it. The Bible. Do you know what Jesus called humanity? in its natural state in the Bible. Modern American culture, he called us his best friends. Bible, you are of your father, the devil. You know what Paul called humanity in its natural state? Oprah, blessed if you really want to be blessed and send out good thoughts into the universe. Bible, children of wrath. There exists between God and humanity in its natural state of sin and enmity. If you hear the word enemy there, that's exactly the word Paul uses in Romans chapter 5 to describe our condition before God. Now right now what's jumping to your mind is yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. There is a yeah, but but not for a while. See, until we really begin to see that what the Bible is trying to put before us in the notion of human sinfulness, we can't really understand what it is that Christ has done for us. Consider this, that when the Bible is talking about Jewish worship, the reader of this this book, the Hebrew of the time of Jesus and Paul and the disciples, their idea of drawing near to God is, okay, I go to the temple. I go to the temple to worship. But when I get there, there's rules about how close to God I can actually get. I can only go so far. I mean, if I'm Jewish, I can go into the temple. If you're Gentile, you can go into the temple, the courtyard, but then you got to stop. Only Jews can go into the actual temple. And then once the Jews go into the actual temple, Gentiles, you can't come. Then only men can go further in. Women have to stop here. So men go further in. And then once they go further in, then only priests can go further in. And all the men have to stop. So then the priests can go further. And then to go into the whole way, into the very presence of God himself, only the high priest can go, and only once a year. 
Under that system, there's barrier, 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 barrier. And it is as, as essential and innate and understanding in humanity as there is. Go look at any religion in the world anywhere. And what you see is humanity in different words, in different ways, in different styles, trying to bridge a gap that they know exists between them and the divine or whatever you want to call it. Good works, sacrifices, right living, good deeds, whatever. Innate in humanity is a sense that we are separated. And it's innate because it happened in the beginning. If you have a Bible, just put a little, you can put a little ribbon here in Hebrews. But let's go to Genesis. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book. And then we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, which in my Bible is on page 4. Okay, so not saying it's on yours. Your Bible may be page 2 and mine is 4. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verse 6 and 7. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, let me really quickly recap it. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them in a state that he calls good. We don't know exactly what that means. We know it's sinless. He's created them in a state that is called good, and it's sinless. He gives them one commandment. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the middle of the Garden of Eden. One commandment. But where there's commandment, there's opportunity to sin, opportunity which they take. They Verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 3 are the story of what's called the fall of humanity, where humanity sins for the first time. Verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. By the way, they were naked. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, if you, like me, believe that this story is literal, or if you, unlike me, believe this story is figurative, it is irrelevant. The point is the exact same. They existed in a sense that was destroyed by sin. And that all of a sudden, upon sin, upon disobeying God and eating of the fruit, they become aware of a new reality. And the very first thing they realize is their deficiency. They're naked. That nakedness is not just an expression of physical nakedness. It's also a sense of a spiritual nakedness now before God. My deficiencies before God are now evident to my mind. And, and, and commentators, those are people that write about, Bible, about the Bible, and religious philosophers, or Christian religious philosophers, have debated this for a long time and come up with this idea that humanity didn't have a conscience before the fall because it didn't need one. It was just good. It didn't know what evil was. But when evil comes in the world, then the knowledge of evil comes in and conscience becomes a blessing and a curse to humanity. Conscience is a blessing to humanity because it keeps us from being as bad as we could be. But conscience is also a curse to humanity because it also tells us 
how good we aren't. And every time that I do something that I think is good, but I know the 10 ways it could be better, but haven't done it, my conscience is reminding me that I'm not perfect. And perfection is God's standard. See, when we say, yeah, but nobody's perfect, wrong. God is perfect and demands perfection. So that even just taking a piece of fruit from a tree becomes an episode of evil. And that doesn't make sense to us because we're like, it's fruit. I'll buy you a piece at the store. Which misses the point. God's holy perfections require holy perfection from anyone who will be with him. And one sin makes the sinner imperfect and an object of wrath. See, when God sets into our minds conscience, the picture becomes a constant reminder of our imperfections. So what did Adam and Eve do? They immediately tried to hide their imperfections. And if you know the story, God walks in the garden and the first thing they do is hide. They hide from him. And then once God starts questioning them about what happened, they start blaming everybody else. He asks Eve, why did you do this? The serpent. The serpent deceived me. He asks Adam, why did you do this? The woman. It was the woman's fault. What you see is the consequence of sin. And it's the consequence of sin that consistently plays itself out in every one of us all the time and in every relationship. Hide, deny, deflect. Hide myself, hide my sin, hide my responsibility, deflect it to somebody else. It wasn't me. Well, see, what happened was, if so-and-so would have done this, I wouldn't have had to do what I did. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but if they would have done what they were supposed to do, I wouldn't have had to do this. It's not really my fault. It's not my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's not my fault. It's my husband's fault. It's not my fault. It's my boss's fault. And then the ever-popular, it's not my fault. It was my parents' Hide, deny, deflect. This becomes humanity's uh, just complete way of doing things. It becomes their MO. We deny our sins. We hide it. I find myself now, even in my renewed mind in Christ, my first response is always to hide, deny, or deflect my sin. When I sin, my first thing is, don't tell anybody, hide it. My first thing when I'm confronted with sin is, the lie is on the tip of my tongue before I can stop it sometimes. Did you do this? No. Yes. I meant yes. See, when I say no, I mean yes. <laughs> Somebody else's fault, not my fault. You're teaching pastors, ladies and gentlemen, right? Constantly having to monitor. 
I sinned against this person. I sinned against myself. I sinned against God when I did this. And I never want to just be open with it. I never want to lay it out there. I want to spin it. I want to make it sound not as good as it or, or better than it was. I try to deny that it really happened. I say that I'm, it's not really who I am. I've just been really tired. I'm sick and I'm tired. And that's why I did this. No. All that is is human nature coming back out of me. That's all it is. This attitude, it's this very attitude of sin, not me, not it, no, that begins to create the separation between humanity and God that God puts into enforcement. In, in Genesis 3.24, if you want to flip over there, you'll see where God physically kicks them out of his presence. He kicks them out of the garden of Eden and he drove out the man, verse 24 says, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The idea is God is saying you cannot become immortal in this state. You cannot become like me in that sense in the state that you are in. So he puts a sword between himself and humanity. And in every culture, in just about every culture we can think of, the sword is a symbol of enmity. I put a sword between you two. God is saying now, now, because of your state of sinfulness, we are enemies. And there's a sword that exists between us. Slashing every way so you can't come back in here. Even, even when God chooses Israel out of the world to be his nation, to be his representative nation, even when he does that, separation is still the theme Flip over to Exodus chapter 19. That's just one book uh, in. Exodus chapter 19. This is as they're about to get the Ten Commandments. This is as Israel is about to receive the law. This is as Israel is about to become the covenant people of God. This is as that is happening. In, verse 19, in chapter 19, verses 10 and following, this is what... Uh, Moses writes in Exodus, and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. What's the image? Separation. Even God's chosen nation is told, don't come too close. And anyone who does come too close, kill that dude. Separation, separation, separation. That is humanity in its natural state. That is what natural humanity 
in its natural state, denies with all its passions. We write Christian books where God's not going to punish anybody because of sin because our natural state is to believe that he won't. Separation. He, he's not going to do anything yet. done anything yet. Feels better. Just not in here. That we exist in a natural state of enmity with God has to be the foundation of our understanding in order to fully see what the fullness of Christ has brought. See, if we, like the modern American religious culture, believe, oh, God's good, everything's fine, then Christ is really nothing. If everything's fine, what's the big deal? Are you with me? I mean, if Christ, if everything's fine between everybody and God, so, yeah, Christ, but who cares? Everything's fine. That's not what the Bible teaches. And because the Bible teaches the exact opposite, that in fact, humanity exists in a state of anonymity between them and God, Christ becomes everything. When we see Christ have a different scope and a different way, a new covenant is enacted where it's not all separation, 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 separation. The way is open. The way is open for all. Now watch this in Genesis chapter three, verse seven. Genesis three, seven. This is what happens. When uh, Adam and Eve discover their nakedness, what do they do? When they discover their nakedness, it says this, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's the idea? They try to cover what's wrong. They do it on their own. They try to make their own covering. That's exactly what religious practice is. I'll do my own good deeds and they'll cover me. I'll be nice to the right people and they'll cover me. I'll be 50.1% good. And since I'm mostly good, it will cover me. But it won't. I mean, if anybody in here, if I said, hey, for the rest of your life, you've got to wear fig leaves. How many would be like, all right, I'm in. Somebody who's weird, but the average person would go, no, I'm out. But do you see that that's our default? I've sinned. But you know what? I worked at the homeless shelter last week. I'm good. I've sinned. But I'm going to go to church in the morning. It'll be fine. I've sinned. But I mean, I know somebody who's a drug dealer. I'm good. Cover, cover, cover. But Christ teaches us a new way. Christ teaches us a different way. See, watch this. In, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, this is right before God drives them out. Verse 3, 21 it says this, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You catch it? Number one, an animal died. An animal died. It's already a prefigurement of the sacrifice of Christ. And that animal dying provided what? 
a better covering. See, if I told you all, you got a choice. You got one of two choices. One, you can wear fig leaves the rest of your life, or you can wear leather the rest of your life. You're already going, leather? Okay, weirdos. That's enough out of you. What's the obvious choice? The obvious choice is the better garments. It's better. And notice that it's God that makes that garment for them. They didn't make it themselves. It was a gift to them. This is an image of Christ. We exist in a state of enmity with God because of our sins. And if we try to cover those sins up or make it better by doing our own stuff or thinking that we can be good enough to cover our sins, that is a suit of leaves. Poison ivy to be exact. But if we let God cover us in Christ, it's infinitely better. It creates a new way. Not the way of fig leaves, but the way of the leather garment, if you will. Watch this. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, when God is talking about this new covenant, this is what he says. Come now. What's the old? Separate, 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 separate. When you sin, don't come to me. Go to the priest who will go to the other priest who will give it to this priest who will bring it before me. You stay out there. The new, come. Come. Let us reason together. The old way. The priest makes the sacrifice for you. You don't even get to go in there and make your own sacrifice. The new way. Let's reason together. Which means what? Meet together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There's a very real sense in which we see our sinfulness, our conscience reminds us of our sinfulness, and our inclination is to cover, 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 don't let him see it, don't confess it, don't go forward with it, don't mention it, don't bring it to God. Skip church so you don't feel guilty. That's the old way. That's the way of enmity. God has offered us something greater, which is come to me with it and it'll be forgotten. How many times are we going to watch, you know, these politicians get into the, the scandal of the week, right? What is it this week? I don't even, I can't keep up with them all. And what is it? Cover up, cover up, cover up, cover up, cover up. And finally it's exposed. And it's always a million times worse. If they had just come out and said, this is what happened, would we forgive them? No, but it wouldn't be as bad. (laughs) We're not God, right? How many times are these uh, professional athletes going to be exposed, right? For, for this or that or whatever, cover up, cover up. No, 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 it comes out. Well, I'm really repenting now. That you got God? Let me put it into a, a, more, a more home uh, environment. Parents, let's take two scenarios, right? Say that your child has done something wrong, okay? Uh, 
scenario A, which I call the hypothetical world. The child comes to you and says, this is what I did. I did this. This is what I was thinking when I did it. This is why I was thinking that. And this is what happened. Are they in trouble? Yes. But doesn't your heart soften some? Scenario B, which I call the real world. You basically have to be a prosecuting attorney. (laughs) On April 18th, where were you between 758 and 759? My room. When was your lamp broken? Those times. Was it you? No. Were you the only person in the room? Yes. Who broke it? Santa. The dog, the cat, the my Martian friend. Or the ever popular, I don't know. If you don't think that cover-up is human nature, all you need is a toddler who can talk. Did you do that? No. Love you. Like, they're already trying to change the subject and get out of it. Wicked from the womb. That's what the Bible says. Let me give you another perspective and, and let me stress that I don't know this guy. I don't know the situation. It affected me not at all. Um, it affected some people very, very personally. So I just want to put this in. a. am trying to give examples so you can catch on. When Lane Kiffin quit, right? And again, I don't know him. I know it affected people differently. I'm just This is my perspective. When he left for USC, there was all this, uh, it's better than when I got here. I did good by you. We're okay. I'm sure you should be fine. You were lucky to have me, right? <laughs> Again, just my perspective. But what would have been the difference had he come out and gone, I know this is bad. I know this is bad, but USC is my dream job. And I know this is, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but this is my dream job and I've got to take it. Would you still be mad? Yeah. But everybody in here knows dream job. They get it. Would you still be mad? Yeah. As mad? No. There's something about covering and denying that reveals wrath. And I I promise that There's going to be a reality in hell where the people there will deny they did anything to get there. But the new way is different. The new way, the way in Christ says, come, come, confess your sins, reason together with me. They will be washed away. You will be forgiven. Look back at Hebrews and look at chapter four in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, and now that you know this language, look for it. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews, in verse 15, is saying this about the new way, about the way in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near. You catch it? Draw near is the language of the worshiper. Confidence is the new attitude. With confidence, draw near where? To the temple where I'm barred? To the tabernacle where I'm barred? To the holy mountain where if I come up on it, you're going to kill me? Draw near to the throne of grace. Where we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Let me address two groups. One, if you are not a Christian in this room, if you know that Christ is not your Savior because you've never confessed him as such, if you know that Christ is not your Lord because you've never confessed him as such, it's never been a personal choice to repent of your sins and come to God in Christ. Know that the Bible teaches, and I quote, you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. It is only Christ's perfections that can open up this new way to you. When we close our service and pray in a few moments, I beg you to seek the Lord while he can be found. That anyone who comes through Christ will be accepted. That is his promise. And everyone who doesn't won't. And that's his promise. But Christians in the room, let me say this. There aren't a lot of oughts and shoulds in Christianity. Things you have to do, but this is one of them. You must begin to endeavor to live the new life. If Christianity is just, yeah, Jesus died for my sins and I'm good, then the reality is you don't believe it. If you believed that I was about to pull a hand grenade out and throw it into the crowd, you would run. If you thought, he could do that, and now you're probably worried. You wouldn't do anything. It's not real. You don't believe it. If you believe that in Christ, a new way to God has been opened to you, it must affect how you react and interact with God. Must. If not, you don't know Christ like you should. I say that tenderly. Come to God through Christ, knowing that your sins will be forgiven. Don't hide them. Put them out there. I promise you, burying your sin will bite you in the end. It always does. It always has. It always will. Come to God. Some of you here today are hiding your sin. You know what it is, but you don't want to deal with it. Just like me. Just like me. But seek the Lord. Come to him. Confess. Confidently go, knowing there is grace. There is grace. Would you pray with me? My Father and God, your grace is too wonderful for us. 
It's beyond all measure. It's beyond all notion. More than we could ask or imagine. Fathers, we take this time to worship you. I pray that every believer in this room would be more concerned about laying their sins before you than chilies. I pray that they would take this time to, even as they sing, confess with their hearts the reality of the sins that still lay in their flesh, knowing that they are now accepted and adopted because of you, Jesus. In all these things, Father, your grace is sheer and true amazement.